Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer, and today I'm sitting here drinking some coffee with Dr. Jeff Gibbs. I know Dr. Gibbs because he was a really beloved professor at the seminary while I was there. Uh, I actually only had one class with Dr. Gibbs, but very honestly, Dr. Gibbs, I remember more of your one-liners than truly any of my other teachers or or professors. Um, Two that really come to mind quickly are, um, you know, when you were handing back graded papers and, you know, everyone just kind of takes a deep, deep sigh um, when they see their, their grade. Your class is really hard. And you would remind us, it's okay, you're baptized. And, right, amen. Yes, and amen. I tell that to my children uh, now who are, you know, four and two, it's okay, you're baptized. Right, right. <laughs> also, buy big books, something that I don't think I'll ever forget. You told the um, seminary class, after graduating here, you be sure that you still buy big books, have them on your shelf right. and read them. Right. And so right. when I go to order a book and I think, wow, this is a very expensive book. <laughs> I also weigh that with you telling us to buy big books. So, uh, Dr. Well, I'm happy to help. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Gibbs, I know you, but for those listeners who um, don't know you quite as well, can you just give a little introduction um, maybe including what a seminary professor does uh, for fun after retiring. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to, Steph. Thank you. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, sometimes when former students say, you know, I remember it when you said, and then I take a breath because I have no remembrance of saying these things at all. <laughs> but I'm happy to lay claim to the two one-liners that you uh, specified. Um, yeah, so uh, it's funny when I... When I retired, uh, and then they finally, after COVID, had a little uh, observation after chapel. And uh, one of the things I said there is that uh, I don't actually have any pedigree uh, when it comes to Lutheranism. Um, and uh, my parents were, were baptized as young adults. They became Christians in their 20s. And uh, it was at Bethany Lutheran Church in Trenton, New Jersey, which is still existing. It's a very small church, I think an English district congregation. Um, So, and I was the first child in our family to be baptized as an infant. So we were brand new to Lutheranism. And and yet, you know, God works in unexpected and very odd ways. So um, I grew up in the church. Uh, I went to uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Springfield, Illinois. And then those were the years when the seminary was moving, you know. Uh, So then, uh, and Renee and I were married already at the time. Uh, We've been married 48 years, uh, almost. Uh, I served in uh, congregational ministry for 10 years in uh, Northwestern Oregon, uh, a dual parish for six years, and then uh, stayed at the larger of the two parishes when we divided them for four more years. Then I did graduate work, and then I was called to the other seminary, as we called it uh, in Fort Wayne. You know, St. Louis was the other seminary. (laughs) Um, Yes, and so I taught there since 1992 uh, in New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew is my special love. Um, And uh, 
what does a seminary professor do in retirement? Uh, so far, he mostly rejoices in not having to do a lot of things. <laughs> uh, it, it's really uh, quite remarkable. And I, I will mention this um, because I don't think I'm necessarily that unusual. Uh, one of the things I discovered after I retired was just how weary I actually was. Um, and, you know, my health is good. Renee, as you know, has had some health issues, although she's doing great now. Um, but, yeah, I, I just been a little surprised. I knew I was tired and I knew I felt like it was the right time to retire. I was 68 at the time. But, uh, yeah, it's been a, an interesting journey. So, uh Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, and so I've been taking advantage of that. And um, uh, what God has in store, I don't know, but occasionally wonderful opportunities like talking to you uh, come up. And so, um, yeah, it's been, I've been content to kind of do what the Lord puts in front of me. I haven't gone searching for anything or uh, someone asked me, well, what's your plan for retirement? And the question confused me at first until I realized I don't think I've ever had a plan. You know, I don't, I don't do plan. I just try to be a Christian and, and, Oh, here's an opportunity to serve. Maybe I'll do that. You know? Mm. <laughs> so that's my, that's my grand vision for my life. So. Yeah. Good. And then I'm, I'm sure in addition, uh, you're probably visiting family because your family's kind of scattered throughout the States, correct? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Oddly enough, um, Almost everyone is now on the West Coast in Southern California by job job requirements. Actually, most of that uh, is explained in that way. Okay. Uh, and then one other son in uh, Utah in the West. So, yeah, they're all a long way away. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's not too bad because uh, I can go to bed at night and it's quiet in my house. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is that like? What is that like? <laughs> uh Let's see, Stephanie, I hath not seen, nor hath here heard, <laughs> nor hath entered into the heart of mother, but God has prepared for those who love her. <laughs> <laughs> Something to look forward to, but to now currently enjoying the moment, I suppose. Very, very much an eschatological hope, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Well, Dr. Gibbs, I wanted to have you on because we're now eight episodes into Friends for Life. Um, in our first season, uh, a podcast where we talk about life issues and the church. And I realized it was time to pause and really answer kind of a foundational question, which is why are we pro-life? Why does or should the church uh, care so much about various life issues? Um, And as I mentioned, in addition to to teaching my hermeneutics class at at the seminary, I think of you on campus as the life guy. You and Renee led the life team um, on campus at the seminary when when we were there. And you were, and I imagine still are, very active in the life arena. So I guess we can just start with this question. Um, What does pro-life, in quotations, what does it mean? Um, I guess, how would you define it? And do, do you think there's a better term to use? That's, a, that's a, actually a really great question, Steph, on a number of levels. Um, because uh, once we're talking to other people, words don't necessarily mean what we'd like them to mean, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously, pro-life just means in favor of life, right? 
Uh, and that raises other interesting questions like how do you recognize life? Are we talking about human life? I think when the phrase occurs, pro-life, uh, the assumption is that we're talking about the life of human beings, of persons. Um, and uh, so, yeah, to be fa in favor of life as opposed to against it, uh, to want to protect life and nurture it. And uh, theologically, we have great resources for um, and reasons to do that. Uh, I actually do prefer, and this is, it's a preference of mine. I'm not saying that anyone else has to think this way. But uh, I am a little worried <clears throat> that in the public sphere, pro-life has inevitable political connotations. And it's not that politics is a bad thing. It's obviously not. We're citizens and we're supposed to be involved and so forth. And it's not that you have to belong to one political party or another. Um, I myself am an independent politically. Although, again, that doesn't really matter to anybody or should. <laughs> um, but uh, and so actually the phrase we learned from a friend uh, that I have come to use almost exclusively is life affirming. Life affirming. Uh, and it, yeah. And it has the advantage of being confusing. Right. Because hmm. people haven't heard it. And then they say, well, what do you mean by that? Interesting. And then you could say, well, I'm glad you asked. And yeah. then you can explain what it means to affirm. And again, it, the implication is uh, human life in that discussion. Obviously, all of God's creatures uh, are important, but humans uniquely so. And, uh, and there are great reasons why we affirm life or, uh, as it could also be said, are pro-life in that wide sense. Hmm. Well, I guess that would that would be a great launching point to my next question, um, which is, you know, what, this could lead us into a, a talk of of theology. Um, why are we as as Christians specifically then life affirming? Um, what is it about our theology that would lead us to be life affirming people? That's a great question, and I think there's more than one thing. Uh, more than one truth that uh, can be brought to bear. As Christians, it all has to come ultimately from the scriptures, right? So if there are small things, uh, like very specific things, like thou shalt not kill. Oh, well, that means that human life should be not taken away, right? Um, and there are specific Bible verses that a person can, uh, without too much trouble, cite. Uh, and that's all good. Right. And uh, I think we should be ready to use all of the resources that we have. Um, as I've thought about it, though, uh, for my money, <clears throat> there's two very large reasons. And I like them because they're large. And I like them because they're very Christocentric. Hmm. They're, they're, it, whenever possible, I like to relate something to the gospel <laughs> and to Jesus. And so I would... I, I like to say, and I think about it this way, that the very fact of the incarnation, that the eternal second person of the Trinity became a man, a male human being, uh, has implications in the first place for how do we recognize human life? What is human life? Uh, what does it mean to be a human person, to be someone? I think there's immense implications uh, from the doctrine of the incarnation. But then uh, a very quick and easy step, and this is one that Lutherans especially, I think, can be joyful to make, is the universal invitation of the gospel. 
That is the fact that every person I ever meet, I'm looking at you now because our hearers can hear us, but I can see your face. You are a person for whom Jesus of Nazareth gave his life and rose from the dead. And I can look at any human being that I meet today. I can look at my next door neighbor and that statement will be true. And so if, if Christ himself is the definition, the perfect definition of human life, and then his work on behalf of all people, even those who ultimately reject him and are damned, right? The, the invitation, the objective work of Christ and the invitation is for everyone. Then that teaches me that even someone I don't like, you know, even someone I hate, uh, oh, maybe even my enemy <laughs> is someone that I can love and value and esteem and try to find ways that I can affirm his or her life. So those are the two biggies for me. It's not that they're the only things that we can say. Uh, and we could talk about other things that you like, but but that's that's the way I think about it. Well, so you started with, um, you know, talking about the the term pro-life is, is kind of being maybe a little bit politically charged for, for right or wrong. Right. Um, but then as Christians, although, you know, politics plays a, a part in our certain vocations, um, our, our primary allegiance then should be to the word of God in the gospel. Exactly. And so that not only changes probably the the terminology that we would use and the way that we talk about these things, but also our very reasons for wanting to protect and nurture life. Is that correct? Am I hearing you correctly? The, thank you. That's a, a beautiful and succinct and more eloquent way that I could say it myself. <laughs> um, the, uh, and, and when we are in the public sphere, you know, we do at times have to talk. We can't appeal to the scripture very effectively to someone who doesn't believe in the scripture or its message, right? And so there are other ways to talk. So there's kind of secular moral reasoning, right? Um, and there's, uh, so you, you search for common ground with whoever you're talking to. But again, if the question is as Christians, right? Yeah. As Lutherans, what are our reasons and motivations? So again, it's a complex thing. And depending on who you're talking to, you might choose one line of approach to the issue or another one. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Well, then I'd like to, I'm, I'm curious really to hear your thoughts on the the two big reasons other than what you mentioned, but if you can kind of go into that more specifically, Christ's incarnation first and then yeah. and then the gospel that he died in, in rose and then is, is coming back for the new creation, um, right. really how that launches us in a very practical sense to right. care for our neighbor. And I guess- Here's another thing. I'm not just referring to, you know, what we would call these life issues as beginning of life, um, you know, situations that we normally would think of like abortion, although that certainly is yep. applying. But I'm, I guess I'm thinking, you know, the way that you're talking completely broadens the spectrum of then what these life issues include. Um, yes. Yes. So how so? Um, I guess, first of all, that's my, my question. If we're talking about being a life-affirming people because we believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and then also his, um, his very gospel message, how does that broaden the spectrum of, of what we would consider life issues and then what we would consider areas of life that need protecting and, and serving? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, <clears throat> let me say two things and then I'll go into that. Uh, 
The first is, uh, I do think that, and this sometimes gets hidden over in current discourse, I do think that the single largest issue in the life arena is still abortion, at least in North America, uh, in the U.S. And so I want to say that up front. Uh, the statistics are staggering, and uh, well, I don't have to go into that, I think, for you or probably for most of our listeners. Um, and the other thing is that I love the way Luther's small catechism actually broadens what it means to be life affirming in its explanation of the fifth commandment. Hmm. So uh, I have the, the current, uh, I think this is the current catechism. I'm so old. I can't remember which is the current catechism. Well, what color is um, it? Uh, it's, it's well, this one is blue. Yeah, no, uh, I don't think that's the newest one. I think the newest one is uh, the maroon. Oh, excellent. Yes. Maroon. Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll have to, everything's up to date in Kansas city. Um, <laughs> But this one reads, thou shalt not murder. Well, what does this mean? And notice how Luther broadens the opportunity for not only not killing my neighbor, but but helping him. He says, we should fear and love God that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Right. And so this begins, of course, with not killing him or her. (laughs) But Luther himself says, look, there's a kind of an endless number of applications. Um, so, okay, segue to the incarnation. Uh, and uh, it was actually Dr. Jim Lamb, who for many years, as you know, is the executive director of Lutherans for Life. I read an article and then I heard him uh, give a presentation uh, some years ago. And it kind of exploded my mind uh, where he said, uh, the son of God was an embryo. <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought, well, as they say in Minnesota, oh, that's different, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and for me, theologically, uh, we say that we say that Jesus came in our place, right? And that is profoundly true in about a hundred different ways, right? But the th- two ways that I've been thinking about for other reasons, actually, recently, is that uh, I think often when we say that uh, we refer to His. Uh, death on the cross in our place. And we call that the vicarious atonement or the vicarious satisfaction. So in that sense, Jesus came in our place so that we don't have to experience what he experienced, right? So he, he, he took the wrath of God. He bore our sins so that we don't, and that we won't have to, but there's an, that there's another side to his, in our placeness, if I could say it that way, uh, and sometimes it's called this, that he came as our representative. He's the representative of the entire, of a new humanity. So he's the last Adam. He's the second Adam. And uh, what this means is that because he does things, we get to do them too. So it's the same. He's in our place, but it's a kind of a different angle on it, if I could say it that way. So, for instance, he died. So guess what? In holy baptism, we die. Now, our death is a saving death to the old Adam. And, oh, guess what? He rose from the dead, and by faith in our baptismal water, we rise too. He's our representative, right? And, of course, on the last day, uh, the risen Jesus returns. And if, if we have died, then we will rise and live with him forever. Right? This is most certainly true. <laughs> so if Jesus is in our place, it occurs to me that we can look at the entire spectrum of his humanity and say, that's what it means to be human because he's in our place. He's our, he shows us what it means to be fully human. And that means 
in the womb of Mary the Virgin, Jesus was Jesus, right? At that mysterious moment, which, of course, we can't specify or, you know, describe very fully, uh, when he took the human nature of Mary, his mother, from Mary, his mother, took upon himself a human nature, then he became a human being. Oh, guess where human life begins? Our representative shows us. And then he was born. He did not despise family. He was raised under parents, properly understood, Joseph and Mary. His life of service and love shows us what it means to live as a fully human being. He, he reverses the standards of what it means to have a good life, hmm. <laughs> especially in a broken world, right? Uh, he lived a perfect life and they killed him for it, right? But guess what? To be human means not to be dead. It means to be alive and to live forever. So our humanity uh, is destined for, in Christ, always has to be in Christ, of course. Our humanity is destined for resurrection and immortality. He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So... So I've come to think of it that way, that, that how can I know what human life looks like? What does it mean to be human? The answer, I look at my representative. I look at my vicar, hmm. right? The one who took my place. Now, I think that has implications for, well, if, gee, if the Son of God did that, that must mean human life is important, right? And should be valued. And I think that's right. But this is why I like to marry the doctrine of the Incarnation, with the actually the universal invitation of the gospel itself, because uh, the grace of God is not extended only to people who like him. Right. And in fact, none of us by nature likes him. Uh, and so uh, I sometimes like to think of the gospel imparting to us a value that we don't normally have of our own. Mm. That, because of the love of God, because of the work of Christ. And again, it's, and not all Christians could say this, right? But we can, and we should. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross was for every human life. And his resurrection from the dead was for every human life. Ergo, oh, what does it mean to be human? Well, it, it means to be unborn in your mother's womb. That's human, right? But it also means to be disabled once you're born, right? And it also means, oh, now you're sick and in the hospital, or now you've been displaced by famine and you're an, a stranger in a strange land, or now you're at the end of life and people are denigrating and rejecting you, or now you have a different color skin, or whatever it happens to be, right? Again, the implications are almost endless for what is human life, what is human life in need and what is our motivation we love because he first loved us pretty simple right and yet i think the implications are almost unending um and a guy like me actually i'm not a very confident person renee is the confident one as you know uh, <laughs> so i can actually get overwhelmed by this you know and, oh but see that i have to pull back and it's not really about me it's about jesus right if I if all if all if all I look at is the endless needs and the opportunities for service, then it just kind of completely blows my 
my uh, self confidence and my mind. So, so that, but that, but there's the gospel again, right? Yeah. Uh, even when I falter, even yeah. if I fail to love my neighbor, I have a place to turn. Because even if I turn away from him, he does not turn away from me. Yeah. So for me, in my thinking, that's the way it works for now. Uh, at the moment, is these two huge truths actually marry quite nicely, uh, and they invite me to be very life affirming hmm. in a in a very large way. Well, well, you mentioned two things that are interesting. Well, all of it's very interesting, but I guess <laughs> two things that sparked more questions from me. Um, well, for one, you mentioned there's endless implications then because of this universal invitation of the gospel and right. how Jesus, you know, was fully human and, and lived out his life. So I guess that's good news for me as a podcast host, because that means I will probably have an, an endless number of uh, episodes to cover because there's always issues. There's always work to be done and there's always people to serve. Um, you, can, you can do it when your grandchildren are grown and married. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I might have to pass the torch by then. I'm not sure that I'll be as, you know, as handy yeah. with whatever new digital advice or device is out by then. Um, yeah. But the other thing, can you kind of explain a little bit more of what you mean by, now this isn't necessarily true for all Christians. And I, I'm guessing what, what you mean yeah. is that the um, different doctrines you know, Correct. in Christianity, don't all hold to the fact that Christ's death and resurrection was a universal, universally uh, applied or universally. Yes. I'm sorry. I guess let me let you answer that question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And again, I want to try to speak carefully here and accurately. Um, but I was thinking about uh, at least classically our reformed brothers and sisters, um, because as I understand it, at least. Uh, Reformed Christianity uh, has at times taught a doctrine of the limited atonement. Now, again, if my listener is surprised by this, uh, you should not run up to any person you know who's a Presbyterian and assume you know what they think. You know, if you want to know what a Presbyterian person thinks, you should ask them yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, li and then listen. But yeah, there's a, there's a tension here and they in the Bible's testimony and they resolve it one way and Lutherans, for instance, resolve it another way. Uh, the tension is this, if God desires all people to be saved, then why aren't they all saved? And this will not be a very good uh, answer. And maybe uh, David Scare or Joel Okamoto uh, would gasp when I say this. The Lutheran way of resolving that is, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we believe that God desires all people to be saved. And, and we have our answer. We say that, well, if we're saved, God has elected us from eternity and brought us to faith. And if we're lost, it's because we've rejected the gospel. And, and that's true, and I believe that, but it just kind of kicks the can down the road. Ultimately, we just don't have an answer. Uh, we just hold those two things in tension. But at least at times, Reformed Christianity has taught that, well, Jesus' death on the cross was not for everyone. It was only for those whom God elected in eternity. And so in a sense, the doctrine of election as they articulate it, this is a Lutheran talking now, it trumps the universal sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Um, and so, yeah, I think that a, a very traditional Reformed Christian would not be comfortable or could not say, 
what I have been saying about the universality of the gospel. Um, I don't know of other Christian traditions that would have that struggle. Uh, I'm only aware of the reform, but in the United States, you know, that's a fairly prominent uh, aspect or manifestation of the Christian faith. Uh, so that's kind of who I had in mind when I said that. Then would it be appropriate to say that as Lutheran Christians, we then, because we hold to the truth that Christ went on the cross for all and rose for all, that then, um, due to that, all human life, um, again, is um, someone for whom Christ died. And so yes. that changes the lens by which we look at others, um, whether exactly like us right. or unlike us. That's exactly right. And now we're basing this conversation a little bit off of um, an article that you wrote for the Concordia Journal in which you quoted um, kind of at length a, a C.S. Lewis quote from yeah. um, his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Um, and you can <laughs> articulate this better than than I could, but he's essentially kind of saying the, the same kind of thing is that when you look around, um, you see either your enemy or your friend as someone for whom Christ died. Correct. So Correct. that changes how you treat them, how you approach them, how you serve and protect them. It, it doesn't. And it doesn't mean it makes it easy, of course, because as you know, there are times when conscience and the truth demands that I love another person in a certain way, maybe not in a way that they're asking me to. You know, to love someone doesn't necessarily mean to agree with them. Right? And so sometimes if we seek to love according to the truth of the gospel, it makes people hate us more, <laughs> if I could say it that way. So I, I don't mean to be uh, make this to sound easy uh, or to be namby-pamby about it or Pollyannish or something like that. Um, but yeah, it, I liked your metaphor there. Uh, it, it, these are the lenses. Uh, I've, I've worn glasses since the seventh grade, you know. And when I put them on, I see things more clearly mm. than I otherwise would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so Christ can, in this sense, become our lens. Um, you know, the Lord Jesus hints at this a little bit uh, when he says, uh, uh, you have heard that it was said, you'll love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is the Sermon on the Mount now. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in so doing, you will show yourself to be the sons of your father who is in heaven. And, and why would that be? Well, because he sends his reign upon the just and upon the unjust. He causes his sun to shine, rise up and shine upon the evil and the good, right? Now, that's a, if directly speaking, it's kind of an appeal to the creation, right? Rain and sunshine and so forth. But why should, and I, this was a seminal moment for me in seminary training. I still remember it. And uh, when, and it was David Scarry, who was my teacher and, he said, why is that true? Why does loving your enemies show that you are the sons or daughters of your heavenly father? And the answer is because the father loves his enemies. <laughs> See, and the, the one saying this, Jesus, is the manifestation of that universal love. So it just, yeah, that was, that was a moment. It was about 1976, right? Uh, and I have never forgotten that moment. So. It made me write 1,800 pages on the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. So that's the problem. 
<laughs> which you're referring to your Matthew commentary. That's that's out yeah. uh, your big blue books. And yes, there I'm just going through one volume. And uh, how many are there? Are there three sections to it? Uh, Twelve. Yeah. No, no, there's just three. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that'll yeah. take me years. I call, the, I call it the unnecessarily long commentary. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, you are the Matthew expert. Um, that's for sure. And I've loved going through your commentary. But yeah, you referenced the um, the part on the Sermon on, uh, on the Mount, um, which, of course, yeah. is from um, Matthew here. Right. Um, and, you know, C.S. Lewis in his Weight of Glory, he said uh, probably kind of a, an often used quote that there are no ordinary people. Um, and yeah, wow, the gospel changes that for everyone. Right. Yeah, isn't that isn't that a beautiful way of saying it? Yes. Yeah, there are no ordinary people. Yeah. Yes, and I guess you know when you when you can apply this to life in the womb, um, to right. um, the elderly and those on their their death um, bed, then not only that, but we talked about life issues being issues of um, you know race or racial uh, justice. Um, immigration, right. um, yep. it, it all changes how we view those things. And of course, uh, we can't talk about all of those things and we'll have to dedicate future episodes to that. But you're just right. talking about here how this one central truth that we believe is Christians really right. launches us into this insurmountable activity um, <laughs> that is the life arena and yeah. serving oh, our neighbor. Right. So, yeah. And, and every every Christian and every congregation will find itself, you know, particularly located. So you can't do everything right. Nobody can do everything. And so that's one of the beauties of it is that uh, if a congregation finds itself in a place where, um, you know, there's a lot of single mothers or something. And maybe the congregation providing quality free child care. You know, see, this is life affirmation, right? Yeah. Uh, but another congregation would find itself maybe in the suburbs and that's not an issue, but, oh, maybe there's another issue. Maybe there's drug addiction or something. See? Uh, again, I, I, I remain convinced that cherishing, nourishing life in the womb in our country, at least remains the single biggest issue, but it's not the only one. That's kind of the point. So each Christian, uh, can be involved, uh, in different ways, obviously, uh, so the life arena is like the gospel itself, like a great big jewel with lots of different facets, right? Yeah. And you don't have to do everything. Uh, you just got to do something. Yeah. So, that, yeah. That's a good quote, too. Maybe that's another one line yeah. I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll use from you. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> now, um, a little bit on a tangent, although you mentioned this in your article, um, yeah. the image of God. And... Um, I'll be completely honest, ever since graduating um, uh, undergrad, I have worked in pregnancy centers, um, so serving women who are, um, you know, in unexpected pregnancies, um, Mm -hmm. doing ultrasounds for them and um, giving them information, um, but also trying to support them to carry their baby to term, to... even make an adoption plan rather than abortion. Um, and so that's how most pregnancy centers operate. And, um, now again, I found myself in, um, pregnancy centers that aren't, you know, uh, affiliated with Lutheran churches. And so that probably sure. changes the, the conversation for them, but, right. um, being in the various pregnancy centers that I have, and, and maybe just 
um, within the, the church in general, I've always heard the conversation be about we value life. We value life in the womb um, because we're all made in the image of God. And so everyone is worth uh, protecting um, and has this, right. you know, kind of intrinsic value. That's yes. how this conversation has gone. And until I yes. read your article, um, that's probably was my kind of foundational reason for why I considered myself to be pro-life. Now, again, tying, tying it to, to scripture rather than, you know, politics, sure. but still. Um, so yeah. yep. you have an opinion on this. Can you share what that is and maybe yeah. how the image yeah. of God, you know, still has a place perhaps, but maybe not in the way yes. that we think? Yes, yes. That's a great question. And thank you for asking it in that way. Uh, because I do think that the doctrine that Originally, humanity was created, and this distinguishes us from all other creatures, right? Uh, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, according to his likeness. So I do think that this has a place in our understanding, uh, in our motivation, etc. It's just that I don't think it, it should occupy the central place. And I think your experience is fairly typical Um uh, Catholic doctrine, as far as I understand it, has a very large development of this idea of humanity in the image of God. Um, other uh, Protestant Christians do as well. So again, I don't want to deny it. I don't want to be heard saying that I deny it. But I think it's a lot more complicated than we've sometimes made it out to be. Because there's this thing called the fall into sin. Right? <laughs> Just that little and, thing. Yeah. Yeah, that little thing. And... Uh, it is true that twice, I, ex I know the verses, Genesis 9-6 and, and James 3-9, seem to affirm that in some sense, uh, fallen humanity still can be described as in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 9-6 is after the flood, uh, and then James 3, I was looking at it this morning, uh, where James castigates <laughs> his readers, as he is not uh, reluctant to do. Uh, with the same mouth, with the same tongue, you bless God and curse man who has made or has become according to his likeness. So he says. So, so there is a place to speak of fallen humanity still in or possessing the image of God. Uh, the the problems with it and the, the problems with making it central, uh, at least in my mind, are uh, include the following. Uh, first of all, I think it's true to say that Jesus never brings this up. Now, we don't have all the recorded teaching of our Lord, but we go with what we've got. Right? Now, I realize this is kind of an argument from silence. Right? Here's another fact, at least I think it's a fact. St. Paul does bring up the image of God quite a bit but he always runs it through Christ. Hmm. He always runs it through a Christological understanding of Christ himself being the image of God, exact representation of his likeness. Now that's Hebrews. Um, and that we are then being transformed into the image of Christ. Right. And, and so Paul actually takes the doctrine, the original creation of Adam and Eve. And he says, and, I suppose this might be related, I'm not sure, to Jesus as the second Adam. Right? That Jesus, uh, although it's also related to his deity, so I'm not sure about that. Uh, 
but he's the icon. He's the image of God. And we are transformed and one day fully will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Okay. So Jesus, I don't think ever brings it up. And when Paul does, he Christologizes it, right? And does not use it actually in the way that is very common among many Christians today. Again, I'm not, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying it has no place. Um, the other problem for me as a Lutheran, and again, I don't want to overplay this, is that the Lutheran confessions uh, define the original image of God in Adam and Eve as righteousness and true holiness. This is in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, and I think the formula of Concord also refers back to the Apology. And they conclude then that in one important sense, the image of God was utterly lost through the fall into sin. Now, again, we've got to, we've got to marry that truth with Genesis 9 and James 3, right? We've got to get all that data together. And so I think it can be helpful to talk of the image of God in the narrow sense or in the broad sense or something like that. But the, my point is, is that it's not central in the New Testament as central as it is in common discourse among Christians. And uh, you actually have to finesse it a little bit if you're a Lutheran because of what the uh, apology and the formula of Concord say. Uh, and I actually asked a friend uh, uh, who will go on name because I didn't tell him I was going to quote him, an Old Testament specialist. And I said, does, uh, does the Old Testament really develop and put to use the Imago Dei, the image of God, and use it as a foundation for ethics. And he thought about it for a while and he said, no, not very much. (laughs) See, but again, it's more, uh, you know, why should we care for the sojourner? Not because he's made in the image of God, but because don't you remember Israelites? You were sojourners and Yahweh saved you. And that's why you're supposed to be kind to these people who are living in your midst, right? Yeah. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. You shall be holy not because your neighbor is made in the image of God, but because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Right. So, again, it's there. I, I don't want to be misunderstood, uh, but I don't want it to be central the way I think it has been central. Uh, plus, I like the gospel. And <laughs> I think. So, yeah, I th- th- that's my opinion. Uh, now, here's a funny thing. You don't even know this. I look, I'd forgotten I'd written this. I wrote an article back in the 1980s, of all things, and uh, I'd forgotten about it. Uh, and it was my first published article, and it was in the Concordia Theological Quarterly at the, the Fort Wayne, my alma mater, right? And guess what the title of the article is? It's called The Grace of God as the Foundation for Ethics. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, I went back and I looked at it and I thought, huh, I haven't really changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that article wasn't about abortion. It, I was just struck by a lecture uh, by a Reformed theologian uh, who emphasized that Calvin uh, utilized the Imago Dei, the image of God, as the foundation for his ethical, uh, that was the basis for yeah. his ethical approach to, Interesting. to valuing and loving your neighbor, you know? Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, oh, that's fine. But so anyway, you could just, uh, this is evidence that I'm kind of a, narrow and constricted and rigid thinker 
and I never changed my mind. So, <laughs> and, and there would probably be too much truth in that. So, yeah. So again, the Imago Dei is there. It's in the Bible, uh, especially and on the radical fringe of life discussions, you know, there's people who regard humans as a weed species, you know, yep. and dogs are as important as people. And I can, you know, Wait, I'm sorry. Time out. Genesis one, Genesis two. Right. You know, this is our go-to. These are our go-to passages for that conversation. Okay. And and for others as well. Yeah. But yeah, as a Lutheran Christian, what motivates me to care for you, at least in a good day, and anybody <laughs> else I ever meet, and the answer is, for me at least, it's the incarnation and the gospel. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I, I would agree with you that that's not just your experience. It's, I mean, as I had said, it's mine, that the image of yeah. God is a central, um, it's central to the conversation of why we, what motivates us to care for our neighbor yeah. as in, in the outside world, even within, yeah. um, you know, church conversations. And right. in fact, um, just different. And not only central, but sufficient. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Right. Um, and, and, and truthfully, um, as we've been preparing for this podcast, uh, you know, in the last month, I've listened to, t- to two separate podcasts, and these are um, come from Reformed Voices, uh-huh. both yeah. trying to um, d- truly d- define what the image of God is. And I, I honestly, I found it fascinating because we had just talked on the phone about our conversation we were going to have today, and uh-huh. they were able to define and pinpoint uh, what it meant to be created in the image of God. And if I'm understanding you correctly, but correct me, um, is that we we can't really, because we have so little information that we right. can't really define what, what it was meant to be created in the image of God. And then not only that, we can't define what it means now as being fallen, um, right. although we still have you know, whatever remnant of that would be, but it's, it's different. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's right. Uh, there have been lots of attempts and lots of work over the years, and I'm not even aware of all of it. Um, so what, what exactly does that mean? Uh, a lot of people point to what comes very next in that text of Genesis, that is uh, have dominion and be fruitful and multiply so that uh, to be in the image of God is more of a verb Right. Yeah. To image God, mm-hmm. to care for the world and so forth and so on. And, th- and that might be right. Uh, I like that answer, actually, because it's actually rooted right there close up in the text of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, Genesis 1. Um, but uh, just the other day, a person says, uh, said to me, uh, this was a Lutheran. Well, I think the image of God uh, in means that we're, we can be creative the way God is creative. I'm thinking... Uh, well, that might be right, but why doesn't mean, why doesn't it mean that we can be rational the way God is rational? Or why doesn't it mean that we can use language the way God uses language? Or that it's, that's the problem of definition. Um, and if you look at church history, I think you'll discover that Christians have suggested any number of answers. Yeah. Maybe they're all right. I don't know. But it is a problem that isn't often recognized, that we, we actually have a hard time defining what that means, other than, again, it sets us apart as the crown of creation, hmm. right? That's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, see, that's probably related to the fact that there's a, you, you know, you're like me, you read the Bible and you're reading along and you, 
you expect it to say one thing and it says something else. So there's that passage in Romans 8 where Paul says that creation is subject to futility, the whole creation, right? And it's looking forward to the revelation of the glory of the, and I want Paul to say, son of God. But he doesn't say son of God. He says children of God. So the creation is waiting for our glory to be revealed. And so I think that has to connect back to the original relationship between Adam and Eve and their purity and holiness and the created order. And that's why when Adam sinned, guess what? The whole creation was affected, right? So there are important truths connected here. Um, but yeah, what exactly is the image of God? I don't think anybody knows. So. Well, that's part of what I, honestly, I find um, safe and also refreshing about being a Lutheran and then having gone through the seminary is that it's, it's okay to say you don't know. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. We can say so much and then maybe not anymore. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, as we wrap up, Dr. Gibbs, because we kind of touched on a lot of things here, could you maybe just summarize one sentence or two sentences? Um, then why are we as the church, as Christians, why are we life affirming? Why are we pro-life? Right, right. Uh, oddly enough, I'll, um, I'll use the uh, mission statement of the Concordia Seminary Life Team. And it runs like this. Centered in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Concordia Seminary Life Team equips our seminary community and others to affirm life. And that phrase centered in the gospel, right, is... It's actually, it's actually taken from the Concordia Seminary mission statement or something. You know, organizations always have to have mission statements, right? Yeah. <laughs> but for me, that's the answer, Steph, is that uh, the gospel is actually the throbbing, vital, unending center, ultimately, of everything that I am. Right? I mean, everything. Yes. It's, not just, it's not just a doctrine in a list of doctrines. <laughs> You know, it is the heart, the law, and the, of course, the law and the gospel. But the gospel is the is the center, and so I think that it can also be the center, and as you said, the lens through which I look at every human life I ever meet, and at least in theory, it can motivate me to love and encourage and protect and affirm that life. Hmm. Thank you, Dr. Gibbs, so much for joining us in this conversation. Well, you're welcome, Stephanie. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. And thanks so much uh, to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the either follow or subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. New episodes drop the second and fourth Fridays of every month. And finally, do you want to know how to get in touch with us? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. Mm-hmm.